I'm, okay, there we go. Oh, great. Thank you, guys. Um, it's great to be in the vineyard. Uh, the vineyard was one of the uh, life-changing, life-changing experiences for me and my wife, my children. And uh, being uh, discipled by John Wimber was one of the greatest experiences of life. Um, I, I uh, learned so much about God from him and so much about life and saw so many things traveling around the world with him. I just I owe a debt to uh, the vineyard I'll never, ever be able to repay. I want to talk to you about that discipleship uh, relationship tonight. If you would, just turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Six. Luke chapter 6. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful word. We pray with the psalmist, open our eyes to behold wonder, wonderful things out of your word tonight. Come, be our teachers, speak to us. Let your word find a home in our heart, in the very center of our affections. Guard it and let it grow there. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, this is Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the whole night praying to God. When morning came, he called his 12 disciples to him. He called his disciples to him, excuse me, and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Okay, here's my question. Why did he choose disciples? Why did he choose 12 disciples? One of my friends uh, that we led to Christ in young life, back in the 60s after I became a Christian, I got involved with the parachurch ministry, Young Life. Do Do you know about that ministry? Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, it was, it was probably the most effective tool for reaching high school kids, especially kids that never went to church. And I got involved in that, and, and uh, I'm from Fort Worth, and I lived on the east side, and I was going to TCU. Um, and on the west side, there was a well-known high school, Arlington Heights High School, and the president of that high school uh, was two years behind me, so he was a senior. I was a sophomore in college. His name was Ken Geyer. And Ken came to the Lord at one of our Young Life ranches in uh, Colorado. And it was after the night they did the crosstalk. So Ken goes outside by tree by himself to pray. And here's the prayer he used when he came to God. He said this, Lord, I don't know you all that well, but if you need any help, I'm here and willing to pitch in from now on. (laughs) Just look up at the God of the universe who determines whether we get to take our next breath or not. And you go, yeah, if you need any help, I'm here. (laughs) Of all the people who didn't need any help doing ministry, none at all, it was Jesus Christ. He's the one person who could have done it all by himself. Right? So, why did he ask anybody to help? Then after he answered that question... Why did he ask these kind of people to help? <laughs> really? I mean, the average person thinks that, uh, that uh, Jesus' goal was to get something done. If that were really his goal, would he pick people like you and me? <laughs> I mean, if he, just, if he just wanted to get something done, he could do it by himself or use angels. It's sort of like uh, when my... Uh, boys hit three or four, I took them out to wash the car, to help me wash the car. Now, I could wash the car in 30 minutes, but if, one, if my four-year-old helped me, it took an hour and a half. Then he would run in afterwards and go, Mommy, Daddy and I washed the car. Look how great it looks. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? To teach him, yeah, to teach him. And because I want him to have a life that counts. Jesus chose us to be part of his ministry because he wants to share with us a life that counts, that counts forever, and to, share the, and to have the joy of a proud father watching his sons and daughters live in a way that makes a difference for all eternity. He wanted to share the joy of a life that counts, and he wanted to 
have joy as he watched us do ministry. So he picked 12 guys who would pick some other people, who would pick some other people, and on it would go. Look at um, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Paul's winding up one of his missionary journeys here. And he's heading back to Jerusalem. And verse 4 says this. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Now, these are converts from that missionary journey. They're all from Asia Minor, and they all had good day jobs, and now they've given up their day jobs, and they're traveling with Paul. Why? Why? Because what they found with him was better than anything they found in their day job. They found a life that counts, and they're having great joy doing it. Now, this was not an accident on Paul's part. It didn't just happen. It was part of an intentional strategy. Look at um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, here's one thing it means. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul says, Timothy, you're my spiritual son. Now, I want you to have other spiritual sons, and I want you to pick out the kind of men for your sons who are reliable. What does that mean? Well, it means they can take what you teach them and pass it on to others. Because what I really want is spiritual grandsons, and then great-grandsons, and then great-great-grandsons, and so on. Now, where did he come up with this? This is Jesus Christ's method for extending the kingdom. It's called discipleship. One-on-one, on-one, and it just keeps reproducing itself. Now, I want to tell you uh, about the Paul in my life. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my life, and... um, how I came to Christ, and then I'm going to tell you about the Paul that God sent into my life. Um, I was raised on the east side of Fort Worth. My, uh, I was raised in a, a dysfunctional, uh, traumatic home. My mom and my dad, my earliest memories are of them fighting. My mom, really angry, really perfectionistic. Um, and, she, and it wasn't just that she was always right. It was that everybody else was always wrong. And, and I didn't quite understand that at the time. I just knew that she was angry, we got, we were, we, we got, she called them spankings, they're now, knowing what I know as a pastor, they were beatings, and uh, my dad, on the other hand, was my hero, but he was never home, and there's a reason he's never home, the angrier my mom got, the more absent my father got, and my dad was, he was my hero, he, he was uh, smart, he was strong, he was tough, he was in uh, World War II, um, taught, he was a chief petty officer. He taught hand-to-hand combat. He was wounded in the war, had shrapnel in his back, and for two days he was carrying men in, into sick bay, bleeding at the back. And there's still a huge knot on his, in the center of his back where that, they couldn't get all the shrapnel out. My uncle told me uh, that my father, my, my mother's brother, uh, told me that my father was the strongest, toughest man he had ever met. And my uncle was really tough. And my dad was smart. I could say, uh, Dad, how far is the moon? And he would from the earth, and he would say 243,000 miles. And I remember that because he told me, not because I read it in the book. seemed like every question I asked him, he had the uh, answer to. And he wasn't afraid of anything in life. I, I remember him never, I, remember, I never saw him afraid. Except now I know he was afraid of one thing. This petite, 34-year-old wife with an 11th grade education. He was afraid of her. And that's why he was gone. My mom had this kind of implosive anger that just bubbled over and, and, and hit you in the face. My dad had this passive, not, not implosive, explosive. My dad had the implosive kind, the kind that uh, blows up inside and then seeps out sideways. And that was kind of how our family was. Um, 
absentee father, angry, angry mother. And when I was 12 years old, my dad killed himself. Left behind that 34-year-old widow with an 11th grade education and four kids to raise. And I was the oldest at 12, my, little, my two younger brothers, my baby sister at three. And I went wild. I, I absolutely went wild. Um, just completely out of control. And I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to be able to go to heaven because I thought you got there by being good. And I knew that I, I couldn't be good, and I didn't want to be good. And I had all this anger in me uh, way before my dad's death. It was put there by a perfectionist, perfectionistic, angry mom. And I don't blame my mom for it. My mom did the best she could with what she had. My maternal grandfather, her father, was the vilest human being I've ever known. I mean, he was just mean. My, my parents were angry. They, they did things wrong, but they weren't mean. My grandfather was mean. And that was the person that raised my mom. So I had all this anger in me. Uh, I've kind of given up the idea of going to heaven. So I find my identity not in school, not in doing well in school, not in sports. I was always a frustrated athlete. Something always happened, an injury or whatever. I found it in being the wildest kid at school, of, of driving drunk at 120 miles an hour, stealing things, just taking big risks, stealing things in broad daylight out of department stores, shooting guns off in the city limit, being actually shot at and chased by police. I just... That's where I found my identity, is always doing something wilder than the next kid. And, and I know if God hadn't gotten a hold of me at 17, I'd have never made it to 21. I didn't take drugs. I got drunk all the time, and I fought. But I didn't take drugs, because in, back in those days, in the mid-1960s, drugs hadn't come to Texas yet, and it was only the weird people that took drugs. A couple of years later, my brothers would be right into the drug culture, and my brother would actually be bringing drugs in and out. Uh, and, and actually making a good living at it. But from my, my class, no, you didn't do that. Well, I had one smart friend. His name was Bruce, and he got religion when he was uh, 10th grade. So that was kind of like, okay, he went to some church camp, Southern Baptist church camp. And after that, Bruce was zero fun. And so we, we, our crowd just ditched him. But I always miss Bruce because he was the one smart person I had in my circle. I mean, I could talk to him about more than the ordinary stuff. He always had ideas. He had political views. And as a sophomore, he had political views. He, you know, why we should vote for Nixon and not Kennedy and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, I can remember him getting really upset about it. And, but then he goes off and gets religious. Yes. Um, so, I don't have much to do with Bruce for 18 months. It's December uh, 18th, actually December 17th, 1965. He says, if you'll come over and spend the night with me tonight, uh, I'll take you to meet some new girls from a new high school. I go, Okay, I'll do it. So I uh, go over. It's Friday night, I think, and uh, December 17th. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm on one side of the room in a bed. We're about to go to sleep. He's on another side in a bed. And I just say, Bruce, how do, you, how, do you, how do you think you get to heaven? I thought you got there by being good. And that's why I gave up thinking about heaven or even hoping to go there. And for the first time in my life, I heard that Jesus Christ died on a cross in my place for my sins. You know, I absolutely did not know that. You think, how could you be raised in Texas and not know that? It's a Bible belt. Okay? I never read this book. I didn't know there was an Old Testament and a New Testament in it. We didn't go to church in my family. We believed in God. We just didn't need him for anything. And we didn't talk to him. We didn't pray. I mean... My dad told me there was a God, he, that he knew everything, had all power, and was everywhere. But that's about the extent of my knowledge of God. Oh, and if you're bad, you go to hell. If you're good, you go to heaven. So I just, that's what I thought. So Bruce said, Jesus died on the cross. Now, I remember seeing the greatest story ever told. That movie, you know? Someone says, it was the greatest story ever told. It was probably the worst movie ever made. <laughs> because all I, I remember him dying on the cross, but I remember thinking like this, oh, what a shame. He's such a nice guy, too. That, and that was it. I mean, I didn't, if they showed the resurrection in that movie, I didn't get it. I didn't get he was dying for me. So Bruce says, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for all your sins. And if you will trust him to forgive you and to give you a new life, he will come into your heart and he will never leave again. And that's the part that got me. He will never leave again. Now, that can't be true. See, what made me not want to have much to do with God or the good life was the fact I couldn't be good. 
So why start something if you know you're going to fail at it, right? Just go ahead and have fun and let the hereafter take care of itself whenever it comes. And when he said he will never leave again, I said, well, that can't be right. What happens when I sin and I fall down, I stumble, I do something bad again? He goes, oh, you're going to do lots of bad things the rest of your life. But he doesn't come into your life because you're good. He comes into your life because you trust him. And once he comes into your life, he'll never leave again. He'll just pick you up if you'll let him. And I go, really, you're sure about this? He goes, well, yeah, because Jesus doesn't lie. And he says, my sheep know me. They, they hear me. No one can take them out of my hand. And they go, really? Yeah, he'll never leave you or forsake you. I go, really? You know, Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No conditions. And I thought, this is incredible. And I just thought, this is absolutely incredible. Bruce goes, well, good night. <laughs> he's been praying for me for 18 months, but he's given up hope that I would ever, that he, my heart was just so hard, he'd given up hope I'd ever come to the Lord. So he just rolls over and goes to sleep. He doesn't say, would you like to pray? Can I answer some more questions? Uh, just goes to sleep. But I don't go to sleep. I lay on my back. I look up at the ceiling. I keep thinking, he will never leave me or forsake me. My dad left me. My mom beat the crud out of us. I can't say that about one relationship I've ever had. They will never leave me or forsake me, regardless of how I behave. And I just started praying and in and, and, and my own stumbling, fumbling way. I, I had no religious vocabulary. I had no biblical vocabulary. So I didn't even know how to pray the prayer. I, mean, I, I didn't know the word repentance. I didn't know, I, I didn't know any of that stuff. It's just I surrendered that night with... I don't even remember the words, but it wasn't important, the words, because what I was doing was trusting a person to forgive me and give me that life that would never end. And I woke up the next morning, and I was a new person. A- absolutely new. I, I, had, I went home to, uh, because I'd forgotten the shirts. I'd stolen some shirts from a, a real nice department store. Those Madras shirts, you know, that bleated the colors and all that, really in style in 1965. I mean, you're a studly Bo Dudley if you have one of those. But they just cost like five bucks a piece, which was an incredible amount of money. And we didn't have any money, but I did come up with a plan to steal a bunch of shirts in broad daylight from an expensive department store and gave my driver one, and I took the rest home. And we had a housekeeper because uh, my mom had to go to work to support these four kids. And, and so I'd given those shirts to my housekeeper, or to our housekeeper when I came home, and I said, Bobby, I want you to uh, iron these shirts tomorrow because I'm going to pick one of them to wear. I get this important uh, uh, meeting in the morning. Come home, and there were all those shirts and the wrappers on the foot of my bed grabbed those shirts up in my hand and uh, I walked back in the, uh, in the room where she's ironing clothes and I said Bobby I told you to iron these blank blank shirts and here they are and now it's too late and I got to go to a meeting I just threw them on the floor and I turned around and I walked out and uh, slammed the door to my room and as soon as I slammed the door to my room it was like a little voice said uh, you can't do that anymore just a little voice somewhere deep in, just, you can't do that anymore and I went oh excuse me Lord and uh, I open the door, I go back into Bobby, and I say, Bobby, I'm sorry I yelled at you, and I'm sorry uh, I, I, I talk, use that language, and I don't want to use that language anymore, and those shirts weren't important. I, I don't care about them, and I just picked them up and walked back in my room. And uh, I hear her plop, she has a heart attack, right, dead on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to that boy? Uh, well, what happened to that boy was, at 2 o'clock in the morning on December 18th, 1965, Jesus Christ came into his heart and began to change it. I didn't make up, I didn't say I'm going to be nice to our housekeeper. I just had a different heart. And all of a sudden I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not the condemnation of the devil, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit that came with sweetness and with hope. That's wrong. We don't want to do this anymore. Now, tell Bruce about it. Uh, Ten days later, I wait ten days. He runs over, sticks a King James Bible under my nose, red letters and all that, and says, here, you've got you to read this. He takes me through the Sermon on the Mount. says, start reading. I started reading. And I started going to Bruce's uh, church, which is a Southern Baptist church. I'm 17 years old. I'm a junior in high school. Now, here's my state, the actual state of my life when I became a Christian. I had not had one single healthy relationship my entire life. We had no money. I had no father, no positive male influence at all in my life. I had no model of a man I wanted to be like. 
I had deep reservoirs of anger in here whose existence I wouldn't even be aware of for 30 years. But the effects, yeah, I would be aware of those. I just didn't know what was causing it. I was tossed about frequently by storms of testosterone. Had no money, no hope of getting any for college. Didn't even know that college was important. And I thought my chances were pretty good. (laughs) How much sense does that make? Well, God didn't think they were so great because he sent a Paul into my life. I went to that church for about three or uh, four months, and then I met this 26-year-old guy. He was a graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he was a young life leader. His name was David Scott Manley. And uh, Scott was incredible. He was uh, strong athletic, he was handsome, he was funny, saw me in the church just kind of wandering around one of the aisles, he said, hey, my name's Scott Manley, and you're, that, you're Jackie Deer, aren't you? And I went, yeah, and, and, he, and so somebody told him, hey, this kid that used to be wild in high school is now coming to our church. Uh, so he started talking, he says, um, hey, I, wanna, I want you to come with me, I want to show you this Young Life Club I'm doing, it was doing it at another high school. So I go over on a Monday night with him, he picks me up, and we go over to this high school, there are 125 maybe 150 kids crammed in this living room, half the football team, cheerleaders, everybody's there, and they're all laughing, and they sing some songs, and uh, then they do some skits that are real funny, and then Scott gets up to speak, and he is hilarious, and, and all the kids are just totally listening to him, and then it comes down to the serious part, and you could hear a pin drop in the room. I went, wow. And so we started hanging out together, and, and uh, he started teaching me things about the Christian life. And he started... Um, uh, training me, and I started doing things with him in Young Life. He, he uh, made it so I could go to Young Life Camp that summer and, and took me up to Young Life Camp, and he was just a blast to be around. And so for 18 months, I just saw him pretty constant, constantly, and uh, then I went off to Texas Tech. I ended up on a, on a, in the summertime deciding to go to college, but I didn't have any money. And somebody had told me about this loan grant program, which I applied to, and sure enough, uh, those people gave me a loan grant to go to tech, a loan and a grant combination to go to Texas Tech. So Texas Tech is 300 miles west of Fort Worth. TCU is the college in Fort Worth, number four or five in the nation right now, depending on which poll you look at, uh, number three in some polls. And uh, I, I just say that because by the time I ended up there, it had the longest losing streak in the whole nation, uh, but not so anymore. Um, so 300 miles apart. Now I don't get to see Scott anymore. I'm over here at Texas Tech. And I don't even know why I went to Texas Tech. Some of my friends were going, and I just ended up out there in the plains of West Texas. Scott's back here building a Young Life, uh, young life Empire in, in Fort Worth. But every time I come home from college, Scott calls me. He goes, hey, what are you doing tonight? And I go, I don't know. He goes, let's go to a movie. And, uh, and in fact, let's go, to, let's go out to eat and let's go to a movie. And, and I said, well, I don't have any money. And he goes, I don't worry about that. I'll take care of it. I was utterly no help to him anymore. I couldn't help him build a Young Life Club because I wasn't there. I wasn't in high school anymore. Um, I was off at Texas Tech and going to spend four years there. But it didn't make a bit of difference to him. Because our friendship was not conditioned on my usefulness to him. There was a love between us. There was a chemistry. And I had not had, had that in any relationship before. And that would happen every time I'd come home. And so finally, about the end of my year at Texas Tech, I go, what am I doing at Texas Tech? Everything I want to do, I want to be a young life leader. I want to be with Scott. I want to be with all those, that college group back there. Everything I want to do is in Fort Worth. And I found out they did loans and grants at TCU. <laughs> and so I applied for one of those. And sure enough, got one. That's a really super expensive school to go to, but I got in. And so just about the time I came back, I was going to be Scott's assistant at Richland Hills Young Life Club in, in northeast Fort Worth, um, or Tarrant County. I was going to be his assistant. Young Life transfers him to Oklahoma City. I mean, that, there, was, there was Scott and me and another guy, and then we had some other guys under us. We were going to take over the city for God and high school kids and all that. And now those Young Life people are moving Scott to Oklahoma City. Oh, what a blow. And uh, we cried and all that. Nothing we could do about it. And I, and I ended up with this Young Life Club uh, way too early as a sophomore in high school. Scott stayed in Young Life for about 10 more years. Uh, our contact was sporadic after that. I, I went up and saw him in Oklahoma City occasionally. He came down, saw, stayed with us. Um, 
he became a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch for 25 years. Um, and, he, and he was good, but he wasn't great. And the, um, when they were giving him the test for stockbroker, he scored real high in everything except one thing. He wasn't motivated by money. And that, they didn't think that was very good if you want to be a stockbroker. So he, he did that for 25 years, made people money. He worked hard. He had integrity. His heart was never really in it. And then he took over the ministry, one of the primary ministries in Oklahoma City, for the poor. And they said he was phenomenal at that. I never got to observe him at that. But I was told by uh, people that were really close friends with him that uh, one minute he would have a homeless person sitting in a chair in front of him, and the next minute he would have a major CEO from that, from that state or the southwest region, and they, he treated them exactly the same. Both were treated like uh, royalty. Okay. Here, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you um, a number of things I learned from Scott in those 18 months of that discipleship relationship. And by the way, discipleship is not, it's not going, uh, hey, Adam, I'll be your mentor, okay? And Adam goes, okay. And then I got this list of things that I'm going to teach Adam. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is Jesus choosing 12 people that he had a chemistry with, and they with him. And it was way more than passing on information. It was sharing life together. It's an intentional relationship. But it's not. But it has to have chemistry with it to work. You can't. Otherwise, it's just a contract you make with someone. So we had this uh, chemistry together. All right. Here, let me tell you some things he did for me. He taught me how to tell my story, and he told me my story was powerful. I had no idea how important that was at the time. So one of the early, early uh, experiences. Is he said, okay, I got this group of young guys who are in a Bible study. We call it campaigners. I want you to come over at 6.30 in the morning. I'm going to come pick you up at 5.30. I want you to go tell them your story. I said, well, how do I do that? What's my story? He says, well, I want you to tell them what your life was like before you became a Christian, how you became a Christian, and what difference Jesus has made in your life. He said, I want you to think about it now. I want you to think and pray about this. Uh, for the next week, and then I'm going to pick you up, and we're going to do this. And uh, so that's what I did. I thought about it. I wrote out some things. I just thought about it. I got there to those guys. I told them my story. And afterwards, Scott takes me to breakfast. He goes, "That was awesome." And I go, "Really?" He goes, "Oh yeah. Did you see those guys? I could see that. You, that was wonderful. You got a great story, Jack." I was sitting up here uh, uh, tonight, looking out the uh, uh, window in Ray and Candy's house, where I'm staying. I was. Uh, thinking about this point, and I'm thinking, you know, I do have a great story. I didn't know how great it was then. I didn't know how much God had done for me then. Now I've seen kids like me that come out of homes like me and never change. You know, I've, I just started thinking about, <laughs> he really has done a lot for me. It's like I see it more and more every year. It's a great story. And I'm, uh, and I'm learning the stories of almost all the men in our church. So we have men church, what we call man church now. And we have these small groups. It's all about shooting and some other things. And, uh, and, we're, uh, and I'm hearing guys' stories. And people I just thought, hey, yeah, he's a good guy. But I didn't, I didn't realize what they'd overcome. It's just amazing. I came from a retreat in Denver uh, last week, or week before last, there on the weekend, 200 guys. And... Uh, and guys started finding the freedom to tell their story. And I, and I listened. When, when I wasn't speaking, I was listening to guys. It's amazing. It's amazing the stories in this room, and we're just not telling them what God has done for us. And, and that's where our real power lies, by the way. Not in, our, not in our positive resume. It's in our negative resume. It's not what we haven't done. It's what we've overcome. That's where the real power comes. See, that's what's appealing to unbelievers. That's what gives hope to people. The best person to minister to an alcoholic is not a person who's not an alcoholic not a person who doesn't abuse alcohol. It's a person who's a recovering alcoholic. So an alcoholic goes, I'll never be happy if I stop drinking. I'll never be happy. And then you start talking to them, and they go, well, yeah, you just don't know what it's like. And the truth is, if you're not an alcoholic, you don't know what it's like. But say that to another alcoholic who's in recovery, and, and the other alcoholic says, oh, no, I know exactly what it's like, brother, and I'm way happier than you are right now. And one of the reasons I'm happier is I'm free of that chemical addiction. I've got real happiness, not the chemical kind. And there's power on those words when you're living it. So it doesn't matter what your story is. There's power 
on the real part of your story, the part you really live in, the part you've overcome. Well, Scott taught me that. He taught me how to study the Bible. And uh, I read the Bible, but I didn't know how to study the Bible. And in the, in the church I was going to, they didn't teach you how to study the Bible. They, they, they had some Sunday school literature, but it wasn't really study. Scott says, hey, we're going to do 2 Timothy. The unit of parent. Now, this is how it started. He goes, the unit of study is not the verse, it's a paragraph. So, and he got me a new uh, Phillips, J.B. Phillips translation. Uh, it's not translation, it's a paraphrase. Um, got me out of the King James, and he says, okay, now, give each, give, uh, give each, uh, I hope I didn't offend anybody about the King James <laughs> translation. Okay. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful English. Um, love it to death. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the paragraph is the unit of study. So we're going to give each paragraph a three-word title. And then we're going to memorize the three-word titles in order, and we'll be able to think our way through all four chapters of 2 Timothy. And you know what? He was right at work. Now, I don't do it that way today, but that's the way I did it back then. And it was really helpful because it got me reading whole books. Um, and then he said, we're going to memorize scripture. And uh, I said, why would you do that? And he, and he quoted Psalm 119, 9 and 11. How will the young man cleanse his way? By taking heed uh, thereunto according to thy word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. See, I like the King James. Because uh, that's how I memorized that verse in King James. And um, he said, there's a system called Navigators. And he got me these four verses. And he said, here, you memorize these four, and then you send back in the form, and they'll send you eight more. And then you send back that form, they send you 16 more, and so on. And you keep sending them in, and I kept sending them in and ended up having memorized 144 verses. People always ask me, they go, how do you, memorize, how do you remember the Scripture? Well, I memorized it. And I memorized it with a topical system. You know, I didn't just go, hey, I like that verse. That inspires me. I'm, I memorized, Jesus is God. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. I, I memorized uh, that we're saved by believing in Jesus. Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. So I've memorized topics. So, so I had file drawers to pull things out. And, and why, did, why would you do that? Because that's what Christians do. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I knew a real Christian once, and that's what he did. <laughs> and, and, and he just showed me how to do it. Um, so I, w- I would carry little verses like this in, in my pocket or here to school and, and I'm, I'm carrying these now and it's not the navigator system it's one that I made up uh, that's appropriate to people who believe in friendship with Jesus and believe in the gifts of the spirit um, and, 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 and believe in discipleship and, and all that and, and I made this up with a 29 year old young man who is the associate pastor of our church who's been my disciple for six years and he made a significant contribution to doing this. And now we're memorizing these in our church. Every Sunday we say two verses. Uh, and we have these at the back of the church. You can get the cards. And, and it's a system. It's uh, basic habits of the Christian life. And then the latter part of it is basic doctrines. But we're real heavy on habits and not as heavy on doctrine. Um, most of us already know more of the Bible than we obey. So we're memorizing the habits that we want to have uh, in our life. And, and you know who's doing this in our church? The young people are doing it. Uh, I tried to get my, my men's groups, but I'm, I'm 61. My men's groups, you know, and mostly in their uh, 50s and, and some 60s, 10 guys that come to my house on Monday night. And uh, it's like, hey, we're going to memorize scripture, guys. And, um, this, and this is great fun. I got them all the verses. And so after the first two or three uh, dismal failures, I just realized, um, well, <laughs> maybe they'll stop. They, maybe they won't come at all if I keep this up. So, uh, but the, the young people, not, well, I'm just telling you that to say not everybody in our church is doing this, although we're doing it in front of the church, but the young people are really doing it. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, why is the church doing that? Because a real Christian taught me that's what real Christians do. And I've been living out of these cards for years and passing them on to the younger guys that are attracted uh, to me. And now I've got a disciple that can actually make these kind of cards in a really intelligent, good, scriptural, spiritual system. Um, he taught me, this is a fourth thing, he taught me to read Christian books, okay? I was 17 years old. We've been studying the Bible. He goes, okay, now we're going to read some Christian books. I didn't know those existed. <laughs> I mean, I, I read books i mean i've been doing that since the third grade because my my dad had been a reader and that's what i thought was you know important but i never read a christian book so he said we're going to start with this there's the author 
uh, from England. His name's C.S. Lewis, and he's really good. All right? he, he said, we're going to start with the screw tape letters. All right? this, and he bought me the copy. This is my copy of the screw tape letters from my junior year in high school. It was published by Macmillan then. 95 cents, that's what it says right here. Oh, for those days. You open up the inside. It says, Jackie Deer, 6901 Norma, Fort Worth, Texas, GL1-9277. You, you old folks, remember when we used to do numbers like that? <laughs> Your phone number was the, the first two letters were, uh, uh, were alphabet, and then came the numbers. I lived in the GL, the Glendale Exchange. Like somebody's really going to call me if they find this book, you know, and send it back home. Um, so I never read a Christian book before. I don't know what to expect. So I open up, and there's, these, there's this uh, preface there on the very front. It says, it says preface. See it? It's a preface right there. So, and this is by, like, one of the most feared scholars at Oxford. I, don't need, I have no idea what I'm stepping into. So, second paragraph. He, he uses the word laudatory. And, and you see, I, I circle it. Because I, I don't know what that means. And so, I get out the dictionary. We had one in my house, and I look up laudatory. Go, oh, okay. Why don't you just say praiseworthy? I don't want to be Okay. Same paragraph, next page. Prodigious, but I couldn't for the life of me pronounce it back then. I looked that up. Next paragraph, ambiguity. Same paragraph, probationer. Okay, that's a British thing. All right, fine. I shouldn't know that. Uh, third paragraph, second paragraph, next page. Corollary? Turn the page. Incorporeal? Animating bodies? What in the? Oh, uh, in this one. This is, and this is every page now. You see the circle? Okay, this one. Listen to this sentence. Shapes so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity. The frigid hurus of a teetable paradise. <laughs> I got a doctor's degree. I, special in lexico- I specialized in lexicography, and I still can't tell you what that sentence means. <laughs> I looked up the words. I still can't tell you what it means. And then you notice on the third, or the fourth page, no more circles. The reason was I figured out by the time I got to the third page of the preface that I was spending more time reading the dictionary than the book. So I figured out I'll just learn these words in context, I guess, you know, which is exactly how we do learn English. We get a context and we, and, and we learn it. That's why we know that there are two words. There are, there are facades people put up, but the one the intellectuals use in writing is facades. Some people put up facades. Um, that you, you learn the word in context. You know what it means, but maybe not how to pronounce it. Um, so we finished the screw tape letters. Oh, we, and I didn't just go read this. We talked about it chapter by chapter. And after we got two of this, he goes, okay, let's try mere Christianity. I go, okay. So by the time I was a, finished my, Senior year in high school, I'd read most of C.S. Lewis's major Christian works. Problem of Pain, Miracles, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters. And uh, s- somewhere along there, I started on the uh, fiction. And then by the time I got to college, I had, or in college, I'd probably read some of his literary stuff as well. All right, fast forward. I'm 20 years old, maybe 21. I'm sitting in a junior philosophy class. I've become a philosophy major in college. It's an ethics course. And I'm listening to this discussion of right and wrong. And I raise my hand from the back of the room. And I say, how can we have any absolute sense of right or wrong without a transcendent moral being, personal moral being, who's spoken into our universe? And the teacher couldn't answer. And the truth is, there isn't an answer to that. Atheists are trying to get around the ones that are real popular, the writing thing, but there's no answer to that. How do you have... Absolute morality, that is one that humans can't manipulate without having something greater than humanity, that code originating in something greater than humanity. There's no answer to that. That's C.S. Lewis's argument in Mere Christianity. You go, how did that, how's a 21-year-old kid know to do that in a philosophy class? Because I read C.S. Lewis, and he's brilliant at explaining it. So why would you read C.S. Lewis? Because that's what Christians do. <laughs> they just, they read one. Okay, um... He taught me how to be real and not religious. 
I love that about Scott. He taught me how to be real. I mean, there's this kind of view that you don't tell the person you're leading or training or if you're the senior pastor, you don't tell them about your struggles. You don't let on because you might be hurting them or damaging their faith. Scott didn't ascribe to that. I knew when he was struggling with lust because he mentioned it. I knew when he was down about something because he said so. I just, he was real. It's just, he wasn't religious. It wasn't about a pretense uh, at all. It was just about being real, and we're going after God together, and you could talk about anything. Uh, to this day, I despise religion, religiosity. I just despise it. Um, six, he taught me that the kingdom was bigger than the church or any of our ministries. Now, he was in young life, but, but he also loved the church. And he loved people from all different backgrounds. He would work with anybody from any different background. And to this day, I could care less whether anybody's a Methodist, Baptist, or Presbyterian. Whether you're in the parachurch, I could care less about that. I got this kingdom, this view of the kingdom from him that was, has really been wonderful. Um, seven, I already alluded to this. He taught me that friendship is the heart of ministry. Not getting people to do things, but enjoying people. Huge difference. I mean, pastors, people like me, are some of the worst manipulators in the world, biggest users of people. I mean, I even, yeah, no, I mean, but Scott wasn't like that. Friendship was at the heart of, uh, of our ministry together. And today, when I look at the young guys that, and, and, and that I'm trying to build a church with, um, I, I, I look at this 29-year-old, this 23-year-old, and their wives, I delight being with them. I just, I just love being with them. They make me laugh. and uh, just, I just enjoy them. I'm so proud of them. Um, he taught me how to give messages that people like listening to. Some of you are going, well, how'd you lose that skill? <laughs> well, I went to seminary. But I'm in recovery now, and I'm doing better. Um, he taught me how to pray out loud with people and that it was an important thing to do. So we were praying together a lot. Somebody has a problem, you pray with them. He taught me how to lead people to Christ. And uh, when he taught me how to do it, he also taught me this is a huge part of being a Christian, Jack. And it should be an intentional part of your life, not an accidental part. This is... This is this needs to take place on a regular basis. It's part of the fruit that God wants us to bear and offer up to him. So he says, now here's how you do it. He says, he says three parts to this. He says, the first thing you have to do is you have to remember a person's name whenever you meet them. See, most people go, I'm lousy at remembering names. No, you just don't try. It's not you have a bad memory, you just don't try. And, and most of the time, people don't try because when they're meeting somebody... They're more concerned about the impression they're making than the impression this person's making on you. So Scott says, you don't do that. He says, you shake that person's hand, and you say their name immediately. And you look them right in the eyes, and if you don't get their name right, and you're not sure you heard it right, you say it until you get it right. And you don't let go of their hand until you got their name right. And then you associate something with them, about them, or the place you've met them, and their name. And then when you get away from them... You, you take out this little notebook, and I used to carry this little spiral notebook, and you write their name down in this and the date you met them and something that will remind you of who they are. And at the end of the day, you review it. And then you review it for a couple of days, and the next time you see them, you call them by name before they say anything to you. I, was, uh, I became a young life leader. Scott knew the names of all the high school kids. Amazing. And the names of a lot of teachers. And... Uh, I was at a football game, so Scott taught me how to do this, so I started doing it. I was at a football game. I'd met a, little, a sophomore girl um, in the lunchroom. And, you know, I'd go up and just introduce myself to kids and had some friends up there, and the friendships grew. And I'd, In those days, we could eat lunch at the high school with kids. So I met this little sophomore girl. I wrote her name down. Remember, it was about three weeks later. We had a ball game on Friday night, and uh, I was sitting in the stands, and she was walking up the uh, stairs, and I just yelled, Hey, Sally, how are you doing? And, and she looked at me, and she blinked for a minute, and this big smile came over her face. And I don't think she could remember my name, but she knew who I was. I was the young life leader at school. And this big smile came over her face, and, and you could just see, I'm important. 
He remembers my name. I made an impression on him. We were doing a young life uh, camp up in Colorado at uh, Frontier Ranch. And this timid, shy little girl stood up on the last night and said that she'd given her heart to Christ. And the camp leader, this real tall, handsome guy named Don Reverts, who's kind of like one of the great young life leaders of his day from Denver, uh, he got along with her afterwards, and, and he said, when, when did you get interested in Jesus? And she said, the other day when you called me by name. And he just met her in camp, remembered her name, and passing her on a trail, called her by name. And that was when she got interested in spiritual things, and a few days later, she gives her heart to the Lord. So first thing, you've got to remember the person's name. And se- second thing, you, you have to find a common, uh, uh, you have to build a bridge of friendship. There has to be something common uh, between you and the guys to build a bridge of friendship with. Uh, how many of you know guys just don't sit down and have coffee and talk, right? That's, <laughs> we guys, we want to do something together, you know, uh, anything. But we, we just don't go, hey, let's go have coffee and talk, you know. Maybe Christian guys meeting for, yeah, okay, but most guys don't do that. All right. So I've got to find a common ground with these high school kids to build a friendship with them. Right? I'm, I'm a sophomore, junior in college, so what do I have in common with these high school kids? Well, here's what it was. Handball. This was back in the 60s. Uh, you know, where you slap that ball against the wall and uh, you do it with your hands. And it was a super in sport to do back in the 1960s. Only problem was high school didn't have a handball court. So you couldn't play handball in high school, but all the college guys played it, and it was a big deal. But I happened to go to a college that had brand-new, great handball courts, and I had an ID to bring gifts in. So I could take those young guys with me, and I would teach them how to play handball. Oh, and by the way, Scott taught me how to play handball. Yeah, I never beat him. He was a great athlete, and, and whatever he did, he beat you at. If it, it was ping pong, he's going to beat you at ping pong. Um, so he taught me how to play, and he beat me. I took those football players and, and guys, and some of them weren't athletes, but they loved sports. I took them, taught them how to play handball, and beat them, every one of them, just like Scott beat me. It was great. Um, it, and I also had a car before many of those guys had a car. So, th- so that was a bridge of friendship that we had. And pretty soon... They're telling me who's doing drugs. And pretty soon they're telling me the problems with this, the girlfriend and, and all that. And we're building this bridge of friendship. And the third thing you do when you have the friendship is you ask God to give you an opportunity to take the gospel across that bridge. And that's what I would do at the right time. It might be at a camp. It might be some other time. I would uh, tell them what Jesus had done for them, just like Bruce told me. And many, many kids back in those days came to Christ and sometimes their parents came to Christ uh, after them. Scott taught me how to do that. Uh, next thing. He taught me that life with God is to be enjoyed, not endured. He was fun. Being a Christian and being around Scott was fun. We, uh, and, and he was a little bit of a rebel, too. I mean, he, uh, he wasn't really a... He's just a little bit of a rebel. One, one time we were at a Young Life camp together. And there were some mine shafts that we wanted to go climb down. They were abandoned, and they were on the side of a, a mountain. And uh, how many of you know it's probably not the safest thing in the world to do, climbing down a bind in, uh, abandoned mine shafts? Well, he goes up to the camp director, and he says, uh, hey, we thought we might just go over here and climb down those mine shafts on the other side of uh, Silvercliff. And the camp director said, no, Scott, I don't think we should do that. That's, those things aren't safe. And Scott goes, okay. Um, and we walked off. And so I'm going, dang, Scott. Well, why did you ask him? Because you knew he was going to say no. And Scott goes, he looked at me and goes, well, if we don't come back, I just want him to know where to look for us. <laughs> and so off we went with three or four of the guys to climb down the mine shafts. <laughs> you might not think that was good, but it was fun. He was just always fun to be, uh, to be around. Life with God is to be enjoyed, not endured. And man, so much Christianity today it's about, oh, it's just, you know, it is boring. It is just, it's, it's religious. It's not, about, it's not about enjoying a person or enjoying one another. Um, he taught me to be generous, to pick up the check and not make a big deal of it. He's always picking up the check. He's always a generous person. He taught me that money was a little thing and had very little to do with my happiness. And he taught me it was okay to compete with all your might. I mean, because he competed, and everything he did, he, he competed. And it wasn't about beating you. It was just about, he just jumped into it. And that's the way guys are. And sometimes uh, I hear the women in our church, don't you guys get in competition? Go, ah, forget you, you know. And uh, it, we're going to compete, and it's okay. Um, now, there were two wonderful things about Scott that I was too immature to appreciate at the time. Okay? 
Here was the first one. I, I didn't, didn't know this at the time until I had a lot more experience in the, in the church. Um, Scott didn't have a judgmental bone in his body. He just was not judgmental. He did not feel superior to people, and he did not look down on people when they messed up. Um, before I became a Christian, um, I was headed in the direction of sex addiction. That's what would have happened to me had I not become a Christian. And so after I became a Christian, walking sexually clean, sexually pure, was super, super important to me. And I think that was just something that God put in my heart because I think that was the, you know, the major trap that would have canceled out my life, taken me away from God uh, after I became a Christian. And so Scott knew that and affirmed it. And um, I just made up my mind. I didn't, no more using girls. No, this, I, I, I'm just for the, waiting for the person I'm going to marry. That was my stance. And stayed away from porn and all that kind of stuff. Well, maybe, I don't know, um, 18 months after I became a Christian, something like that, uh, I crossed a line with this uh, girl. And uh, it wasn't intercourse, but it was crossed a line that I didn't want to cross. And what made it really bad was I knew she had affection for me. She would like, you know, she would like to be boyfriend and girlfriend. But I didn't have that same affection for her. So really, I, I was just gratifying myself and uh, using her and, and deceiving her. And I felt so bad. Uh, the next night, I went over to Scott, and I told him what I'd done. Okay. I mean, I told him everything. Here's what he said. First words out of his mouth. Oh, Jackie. Oh. Oh. And I could just see, it was like he was sharing the pain I felt. I mean, it, just, it hurt him that I was hurting. And he says, okay, let's figure this out. I mean, this, how, did, how did you get in this position? Because this is not what you wanted to do, and you've been doing so great for the last 18 months. How, how did, what do you think? What, what opened the door for this? And so we started talking about it. And all of a sudden, when I was talking to him, and, uh, and, and we prayed together and asked for forgiveness. But, but during that whole process, hope by the Holy Spirit came back into my heart. When I went in to see Scott, I felt like, you loser, you're so insincere, you don't really care. You're just, I, just, I was listening to the devil nonstop, just condemning. All my hope was going away. But after I got through talking to him, I realized this is a stumble. This is a stumble, and it was wrong, and I apologized to the girl, and, and, uh, and was back on track with God. There just wasn't a judgmental bone in his body. And he gave me a model for helping people when they, when they stumble. All right, that was one thing. Here's the other thing. I, I did not get this. I totally did not get this. He suffered more than anyone I've ever known. Any really seriously on fire, passionate, committed Christian. And when I say I, he suffered, I mean things just went wrong for him. Just wrong. But here was the biggest heartache of his life. Here was a guy who was a spiritual father to a lot of young men like me, and all of his life, younger men, he kept fathering younger men. He had one burning desire, and that was to have his own son. And he married this beautiful, wonderful girl, a year older than me. We, we, she went to TCU and worked in Young Life with us. Her name was Ann, and Ann couldn't have children. So now he can't have a natural son. So they adopt. And they name him Guy Robert after Scott's dad. I saw Guy Robert for the first time. He's maybe uh, 18, 16 months old, walking in diapers. I was up at Scott's house. And uh, if I'd had the vocabulary then that I have now, I would have said he's demonized. That little boy, didn't matter what Scott said, he's just determined to do the opposite. He just as unpleasant as he could be at 16, 18 months. And the older he got, the worse it got. And I, I don't want to tell you a lot of personal details, except it was drugs, it was police, it was jail times, it was knives, it was violence. It was just always erupting, always at the wrong time. Hard to see anything encouraging, ever. One time he was eight years old, Ann and Scott were down at my house, and I was watching him act out and how embarrassing and humiliating it was to the parents. And I looked over at Ann, and I just and and when he was out of the room, and I said, "Never lets up, does it?" She she put her head down. She goes, "Never." They would be on a vacation, and they would have to come. They'd have to drive, you know, x amount of hours back because of something that 
he did. And finally, they have to kick him out of the house, but it still doesn't stop. Just broke their heart, broke their heart, broke their heart. The one thing Scott wanted in life, God didn't give him. Have his own son, have a son, follow him, he didn't get. And the city got his heart broken over and over and over. It was August 2008. They're on a vacation. Guy's about 34, and uh, he ODs again. This time he's on life support, and uh, they come home. By the time they get home, he's flatlined. And they're, uh, and then the doctors first want them to pull the plug, and then they don't want them to pull the plug, and then finally Scott and Ann decide that it's time to take him off life support. And they have to, they had to fight for his life, and then they have to fight to take him off life support, and finally they do, and he dies. Scott comes home from the hospital. I talked to him on the phone from Fort Worth. He's in Oklahoma City. And I'm telling him, uh, I, I can't, I'm, I wish I could say something good about Guy, but I can't. But I can say something good about Scott. So I'm telling him how much I love him and how much he means to me and how much he's, he's changed me. And people that have been changed by me have really been changed by him. And I'm just, and then uh, I remind him how important he is to him and I, and I remind him how important he is to me, and I, I remind him that uh, I named my second-born son after David Scott Manley. David Scott Deere was my second-born son. And David Scott Deere was on drugs from the time he was 13 and ended up uh, in a psychotic state, taking his own life when he was 22. Uh, and, and Scott knew that because Scott had been at the funeral a few years before. And um, so I said, you know, I named my son after you because... Uh, I wanted him to be just like you. We cried and cried. And, um, then sep- uh, September rolled around, and uh, Scott got sick. He only had, there's only one thing wrong with him. He'd never been in a hospital a day in his life, and uh, he got sick in September with a real bad case of the flu. And they thought it turned into pneumonia, went to the hospital. Couldn't figure anything out. Got out of the hospital and um, came back home, went back in. And the only thing he had wrong with him was he was claustrophobic. And by the time they figured out what was happening to his body, it was too late to do anything. It was in December. His lungs were filling up with uh, fluid. He had fibers all growing in the uh, lungs. And he was going to suffocate to death in his own fluid. Worst death a claustrophobic could die. So he's in the hospital, and they're, they're trying to make him his death as comfortable as possible. He's having to gasp to talk. Vice President of Young Life from Colorado Springs comes down to see him because that was one of the guys that Scott had, had touched in his, in his younger, younger days. And so he comes down to the door, and he stands at the door because the nurse has just gone in, and the nurse is pricking Scott's finger to take his blood. And while the nurse is pricking Scott's finger, he's asking her about her children. He already knows about her children, and he's asking how they're doing. He's dying, and he's concerned about the nurse's children. The, the vice president of Young Life hears that. He came to encourage Scott, and he just started crying since he realized it's working the other way. And then in uh, January 2009, a real cold Friday morning, Scott stopped breathing and drowned in his own fluids. I, I, I went to the funeral and, and I was thinking for days and days about his life and the impact he's had on me and, and other guys uh, like me and I, I want to share five quick things that, uh, that I think I learned through not learned but just saw in this that are magnificent here's the first thing God gives some people grace to do miracles and he gives some people grace to endure in Hebrews 11 Some people shut the mouths of lions, and some people are sawed in two. Scott was one of those people that got sawn in two. Which do you think brings God more glory? The grace to do a miracle, or to get sawn in two and keep on believing and keep on loving? Second thing. Some people are known on earth, and some people are known in heaven. And before tonight, you probably never heard the name Scott Manley. But I know in January 2009, 
everyone in heaven heard the name Scott Manley. I'm absolutely certain that Jesus said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. If you've never meditated on that sentence, I just encourage you to do that. This is not the real life. This is training for the real life. The one where we're in charge of many things, that's coming. This is the training ground for that. And there is a joy that faithful people that can enter into that is going to be utterly heart-stopping. To have the God of the universe say, look at you and say, well done. And to have that well done growing for all eternity because as, as we look at him all eternity, he's just going to get larger and larger because he's infinite. And our, and our understanding of him, our experience of him, is just going to grow and get bigger and bigger. And that well done is just going to become massive until it fills galaxies over each one of us. What's the price for that? Being faithful with what we have down here right now. When it's so convenient not to be faithful. In Hebrews 11.4, third thing, Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel offered a greater sacrifice to God. And though he is dead, yet he still speaks. I could say that about Scott tonight. Though he is dead, yet he still speaks. Not through books he left behind, nor through books written about him. But through living messages, he wrote on human hearts transformed by his love. He's speaking to you tonight through one of his disciples. Fourth thing. Scott didn't lose his life in January 2009. He lost it a long time ago to the one who said, if you lose your life for my sake, you will really save it. There were probably a thousand people at Scott's memorial service. Very beginning of the service, one of his disciples, actually also one of my students from Val Seminary, was conducting the service. And he got up and he said this, if Scott Manley has had a significant impact on your spiritual life, I'd like you to stand now. At least 90% of us in the room stood. And as we stood, without realizing it, we gave silent but eloquent testimony to the meaning of life. It's not what you leave behind. It's who you leave behind. Probably every one of us in the room would agree that Jesus had a good plan when he picked 12 disciples and that Paul was right to disciple people and he was right to tell Timothy to disciple people. Probably all of us would agree with that. Well, here's my question. Who's your Timothy? Who's your Paul? We don't, we don't get well done, my good and faithful servant, spoken of us for agreeing with what Jesus said. We get it for doing what he said. And this is his plan for changing. I, I don't believe changing the world. I don't think we're out to change the world. I just want to affect the people around me that God gives to me. I just want to be faithful with what I have. And if, and if he's going to send revival that changes the world, great. But that's not my, that's not my task. My task is just to be faithful with the, the, whatever talents he's given me. And he's told me to be a discipler. Right? So I, this is what I... When I think of Scott, the last time I saw him, his hand in the air, he's smiling. He's always smiling when he would see you. He's smiling when you would leave. But, you know, this is the way I want to leave earth. I want to leave smiling with a priceless treasure behind me for my Lord Jesus Christ. And there's grace in this room for all of us to do that if we want to do it. Get back to real New Testament Christianity. The gifts of the Spirit are tremendously important. Friendship with Jesus is the key to life. And part of that friendship is transferring that friendship to uh, others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the people in this room tonight. Thank you that they love to worship you. Thank you that they love you. 
And they want to move in your power. They want to experience the, all of the gifts of the Spirit. Thank you for their boldness to step out and do something different and, and to do something that's really not religious and just to be themselves. Thank you for them. Now, Lord, would you grant all of us grace to be in discipling relationships. Would you grant special grace to the vineyard here to lead in this area, to model it for the community of believers that are all in this area? Would you sow seeds in our heart that will, that will take deep root and come to full fruition? And put your hand over our heart tonight and protect those seeds. So that when we walk out of here, the foul bird of the heavens can't snatch those seeds from our heart. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I think we want to do a little uh, prophetic ministry now. We have a team come up.